You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Live Different Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wilson, and today we have a very handsome man, Mr. AJ Vanerchuk, wearing some futuristic looking headphones. If you <laughs> don't know AJ already, uh, he was the co-founder of, still is the co-founder of VaynerMedia. Uh, he is now currently working on Vayner Sports, and a really interesting project that I wanted to talk to him about was with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Uh, if you don't know about that, we're going to hear a little bit more from AJ. It's an inflammatory bowel disease, uh, which he's done a lot of work on. So AJ, what's happening? Hey man, good to catch up. I know, I know. So uh, it's been a while since we battled both on the uh, football field in Central Park and yep. on the basketball courts downtown. But uh, yeah, how you been? Everything's been really good, man. Um, just uh, still rooted in New York. I uh, used to live in the city, now I'm out in the suburbs. Um, married, have an 11th month old daughter. Wow. and uh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you, man. Yeah, and it's just incredible watching a human develop, uh, you know, just like new things that they learn and new mannerisms pretty much every week. So, um, but yeah, things are really good, really loving what I'm doing and uh, excited to kind of be back to, to building in the early onset. It's my favorite part of any company is the early days. So feeling that's, good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. What's it, what's it like to be back in the, uh, in the early days of, of a company? It's, it's been really awesome. Like I just said, it's my favorite part of a company. Um, it's, there's definitely a level of excitement. There's this kind of ball of clay that you get to mold from you know, the very beginning. And it's been nice to have my experience building VaynerMedia with my brother Gary the first time. And you know, when I started that, fresh out of school, uh, learning a lot along the way, it's been really cool to start company number two from scratch but take a lot of things I learned in that seven-year period of starting one company and applying them earlier to company number two so that company number two can, you know, avoid some of the pitfalls, avoid some of the mistakes, you know, do things better right from the onset as opposed to trying to fix it later. So, um, you know, nice small team, uh, growing client list, and, uh, you know, I'm, a, as you know, big sports junkie. So being able to kind of blend two of my biggest passions of business and sports into one thing has been amazing. That's, that's awesome. And, uh, yeah, that you have so much experience to draw upon now after, after building one Vayner company and, and moving on right. to the, to the next one. Uh, so AJ, you might not know this, but I came across your stuff when you were still in at BU, uh, and I okay. might've reached out to you at that point, but you're going to, you're going to laugh. Okay. Uh, I saw, okay. So I came across your bro brother, Jared, my co-founder and I went to his uh, like his famous Web 2.0 speech where oh, I yeah. I had no I didn't even know what Web 2.0 was I had never heard of your brother or or anything like that we were just trying to figure out like hey how do we use this Twitter thing to get people to our website and right. we had no idea any anything about this this world and we came across you on it, it must have been a video blog. And it was, you were doing something with T-shirts. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me what the name of that is. It's on the tip of my tongue. I can't remember what it was. It was, was. Called, it was called Please Dress Me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, this is a really good idea. I think this has, uh, this has legs. And yeah. you guys were, were innovating and trying new things. And I assume that you guys have tried a ton of things to get to this point and, and invested in things that have worked out. And uh, I, I kind of wanted to start off by highlighting, I don't know, maybe some things that'd be kind of fun if you could take us things through some things that maybe didn't work out or crazy sure. ideas that you had. Sure. Um, so yeah, I think the biggest thing I would say first and foremost is that I think a lot of times people are afraid to fail. And I think failure, um, especially in the micro, is has too much pressure applied to it, so to speak. So um, I think if you're not failing fast, you're not pushing enough, you're not trying enough, you know. So I think 
it's silly to kind of look at anything that I've done or anything that my brother has done and assume that every single thing we've done has succeeded. Like, but at the same token, we don't lament our failures. You know, if as long, my biggest thing is as long as you learn from a mistake or a failure, um, then it was a positive experience. So as far as failures go, um, please dress me. I won't call please dress me a failure. Um, but it definitely wasn't because, and the reason I would say it wasn't a failure is because it was never something that the three of us, so myself, my brother Gary, and then our friend Joe Stump, who at the time was working for dig.com, uh, we never saw it. We never had aspirations for it to be like a full-time job. It was this idea, uh, that Joe and I had when I was interning out in San Francisco one summer, uh, between my junior and senior college. And we just thought the notion of a visual search engine for visual product made a lot of sense. Uh, you know, Gary got involved and helped spread the word like wildfire. We had a lot of great initial buzz. And then we just never, we never tried to go out and raise capital. We never had aspirations to make it full time. But what's awesome about Please Dress Me was it just kind of helped me learn some early lessons in, you know, building a product. I, I, I am so thankful I got to spend that time with Joe uh, just to understand how to prioritize functionality and product and things of that nature. You know, he's extremely talented. Um, and at the time, I was a computer science minor in college, so also just good for me to kind of learn from somebody like that and apply stuff in the classroom to stuff in the real world. Um, other failures, you know, we a, a great failure I always laugh at is we, you know, Gary and I like using the Vayner in our last name as like a prefix for anything, obviously media and sports, yada, yada, yada. We actually had a very, 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 very short-lived co-working space called Vayner Space. Oh, I didn't know and, about this one. Yeah, it was extremely short-lived and it was a spectacular failure because the concept originated from us having Vayner Media growing so fast that we were leaving office space before our lease was done and having trouble renting it out um, based on the interesting deal terms and the niche of it. So we had an office space on, uh, on Park Ave that was two separate floors. We were able to lease out one floor. The other floor, we were basically eating the cost of rent as we moved to a new office. So I said, you know what? Why don't we create a co-working space on that floor? We'll build in you know, monthly guest talks, basically a co-working model. We weren't reinventing the wheel. We were using our brand equity and the available space we were already paying for. We launched it. We filled it up pretty quick. Within like two months, we got a cease and desist because in that same office building, there wasn't a co-working space, but there was like a, a conference room space and their lease basically had a non-compete in the building and they essentially said that we were competing with them, even though oh, it was indirect. Damn. And so, you know, it wasn't a battle we were willing to fight. Um, and fortunately, a few months later, we were able to find a, a new person to lease that space. But that was an example where we spun up a co-working space real quick. We attached our name to it. It had some quick success. You know, it was profitable within like two months, and it would have sustained profitability probably through the duration of that lease. Um, but the mistake that I made was I didn't contemplate and double check. You know, like what were the the potential downfalls of it? Where could we trip up? Where could we make a mistake? So learn from that. You know, make sure you read lease agreements. <laughs> yeah, but other people's lease agreements. How would you even know that? That's crazy. I, I, yeah, I mean, part of it is, you know. You're absolutely right. I couldn't read other people's lease agreements, but I could have sent a note to the landlord saying, hey, here's what we plan on doing. Is there anything I need to be aware of? You, know, you we, would have th thought the landlord would have told you? We didn't ask them. That's yeah. our fault. So, yeah, in an ideal world, I ask the landlord and they tell me. There's also a situation where maybe they would have forgotten themselves because it's one line on one lease in one building. Um, but that could have at least potentially saved us um, the headache. But then again, it really wasn't a huge undoing you know spoke to each company that came into the co-working space they understood you know the other competing landlord was friendly enough to allow us to kind of wind it down gracefully without like kicking people off into the streets um and i learned from it so sure sure and, and you guys have a venture fund don't you yeah we um we have a fund um a small fund focusing on just opportunistic investments in partnership with a company called rsc ventures um RSC Ventures is also a partner in our uh, VaynerMedia media company, oh, okay. and um, we, uh, you know, they have a great background in investing as well, and focus on sports and entertainment. And then we took, you know, Gary and I's own background as angel investors and, and spun up a fund a few years back. Uh, that fund has concluded its investment period, so now it essentially just supports the investments that we've already made. Um, and ultimately, we decided not to do a second fund 
primarily to just focus on other initiatives. You know, VaynerMedia was growing like wildfire. Um, if we were to do a second fund, it would require raising more capital, which wasn't the issue. That wasn't the hardest part. But, you know, when you raise capital, you have a, a real responsibility to the people's money that you're investing on their behalf. What made the first fund feel so comfortable was that there was only three people that put up the money, and Gary and I were two of the three. So we had real skin in the game. It wasn't the traditional model where we didn't put in, you know, any or a very small. We put in, you know, significant money. Um, and then our third partner was the CEO and founder of RSC. So it was a real partnership. Everybody that was making the decisions was also the people that financed it. For that second fund, we thought about we were going to take other people's money, and we just felt like we were spread too thin to kind of take on that responsibility. So we, Gary and I still do some investing individually, and RSE still operates and does their investing, and, and it's kind of where we left it. Cool. Well, it sounds like you guys certainly have enough on your, your plate yeah. at, at the moment. Uh, it, could you take us back to the early days of, of VaynerMedia? So you graduate school, and you decide that you, you're going to start this company, and I mean, this is, it's been... I'm sure it was extremely difficult, of course, but it, on the outside, it looks like just a, a runaway success. I mean, you guys have been able to scale something uh, really, really impressively. So could you, Thank you. Could, you're, you're very welcome and, and you guys certainly uh, deserve it. But could you take us back to the, to the early days when maybe you didn't seem like you, you knew how to scale it out or maybe you just the, you drew up the quick little business plan and, yeah. and went for it. I don't know. Well, yeah, so the I don't know how often this story has been told, but realistically, Gary and I never expected VaynerMedia to be as big as it is. Um, not from the perspective, you know, we're, we're two massively confident individuals, but more so it wasn't our goal. Um, really, when we first launched it, our thought process was build this 30, 40-person agency that just has this wide array of expertise um, and intense dedication to marketing in the year that we live in and always staying on that pulse. I think that was always a huge agenda of VaynerMedia was we never wanted to be stagnant. We never wanted to be stuck in 2014 ways in the year 2018. So we always wanted to be on the cutting edge and that suited our personalities well and we had a good network for it. So the idea was build a 30-person company that had this intense um, expertise and dedication and then start other companies and basically utilize that engine to support those other companies. But what ended up really happening was, you know, a year and a half, two years in, just the combination of, you know, good execution, um, some luck and timing we saw the opportunity that was helping large organizations capitalize on this shift of media, uh, particularly around things like Twitter and Facebook in the early days. So we, we adjusted the plan. Um, we, we built out a very clear business model of how to grow it. You know, I, I would say when I describe the advertising business, it's not, um, it's not difficult, it's hard. Meaning it's straightforward. Um, the hard part is the actual day-to-day, -day, you know, when you're managing and growing that fast, you know, the hard part wasn't how are we going to grow? It was having 24 employees start on the same day when you're only 130 employees as is. You know, that that happened. I remember, because what we used to do, and, you know, I haven't been involved with day-to-day -day operations with VaynerMedia for a few years now, but in the early days, uh, call it year three, four, five, we stopped having employees start full-time in December we let the holidays go by, and then basically the first day after the new year, it was kind of when a lot of employees started. So I, I think around year three or four, we hired a bunch of people in December, but they all started on January 4th or whatever it was. We had 24 employees start when the company itself, like that was 20% of our workforce, and they were all brand new. And so integrating them and training them and making sure you're maintaining culture, that was the hard part. Um, but as far as business model and scale, it wasn't overly complicated. It just required a lot of energy, uh, a lot of expertise, and really that I think the killer dynamic that made VaynerMedia successful was the the two biggest things is Gary and I from the tippy top had an intense desire to do the best work possible to help our brand succeed, and an intense desire to maintain culture. And those that was priority one A and one B together, and they were interwoven with one another. And you couldn't do the best work if you didn't have the best culture, um, and vice versa. 
That that's really interesting. And uh, why did you tell me a little bit more how you arranged it for everybody to start right at the beginning of the year? Was it that uh, maybe you landed a big client a couple months before and said, "All right, we're going to start the project on January first. We got to get the manpower." Um, it wasn't even that. We never really, you know, another thing that made VaynerMedia awfully successful in the early days is we never got overly reliant on one client. Um, that's something that is sometimes the rise and downfall of the agency model. So we always mm -hmm. made sure to have diversified revenue streams. We never want to be in a place where we hired 50 employees for one brand, got fired, and then we had to fire 50 people. That was never what we wanted to encompass. Um, so no, it was more like we just grew really fast and we were interviewing like crazy, man. Like I just remember, you know, to hire 24 people means you interviewed like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So um, it was more that we just didn't want people starting on December 15th, working for a week and then being off for winter, you know, for Christmas and Hanukkah and New Year. So we just thought it'd be more cohesive to have everybody start on January 4th uh, rather than kind of the start and stop. Um, sure. And I think it was also, I think for all the, the, the hardship, so to speak, of onboarding that many people, there was also a, a massive benefit, I think, from a culture perspective of injecting fresh blood, injecting excitement, showing the rest of the company that things are going well. I think that's something that's often underestimated is employees know when the business is doing well. So, and, they, and employees want to be a part of something that's doing well. So I think those other 120 people, when they walked in on January 4th, to see 24 fresh faces was a great way to kick off a new year. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. What Did you put them through uh, kind of Vayner boot camp? And I can imagine your brother up there with a whistle like, all yeah. right, look, guys, yeah, this we is had, how it's going to have to be. Yeah, we had an orientation. Um, you know, it obviously um, got better as we went and went through a bunch of different variations. But, yeah, there was an orientation process. And, you know, folks basically – our biggest thing with orientation was we wanted people to understand what mattered at VaynerMedia. I think that was also just a part of our success was that I think a lot of times larger companies or just the industry in general has certain goals and we had different goals. And we, we emphasize you know, speed, we emphasize culture, we emphasize innovation, um, and we felt that when you emphasize those things – there's other byproducts that ultimately end up happening, like profitability, um, but you don't necessarily have to emphasize it, you know, directly, so to speak. So, uh, you know, we were taking on people that had worked at another agency for five years, and we kind of told them, hey, we want you to forget like 90% of what you learned. Uh, a lot of it was rewiring um, for culture more than anything. Sure. Uh, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about culture. So, so we recently said uh, with Under 30 Experiences, uh, our culture isn't about drinking butter coffee, right? A lot of people love their bulletproof coffee on the team. And then you get someone in, in an interview and they say, oh, yeah, you know, I, re I really love to, to work out. And, I re you know, I really like uh, MCT oil and all the rest of the team. You can see their eyes light up like they, they you know, oh, yeah, th this person's really going to fit our culture. And then we come to the conclusion sometimes that, all right, culture that's not what culture really mm -hmm. is uh and could you help could you help our our listeners define really what you mean by culture yeah i mean i think different people have different definitions of culture and there's multiple versions of successful culture i think the biggest thing that we always try to drive with building vayner media and i try to drive with vayner sports is honestly ultimately Massive respect for one another, um, caring about one another, and understanding that the more you, the less you focus on individual achievement and the more you focus on team achievement, it'll trickle down. And so a lot of what we cared about was building authentic relationships. I think a huge, here's a great example, and I'm actually not necessarily following this with Vayner Sports, but I was a big proponent of it for Vayner Media, and it just because it depends on what industry you're in. You know, the ad industry is different than the sports and athlete representation industry. 
a big stake in the ground that we made at VaynerMedia was no remote staff. And with Vayner Sports, half my staff is remote. So it's not necessarily that I'm a big believer in one or the other. I actually have now done both. But I think for VaynerMedia, it was important that we kept that because what we felt was the most important aspect of us building a successful business was continuity and communication. And we felt that the only way to create those types of relationships and that type of culture was for everybody to be under the same roof every single day. Yeah, um, that's awesome. And so, but with Vayner Sports, you know, given the nature of the business, we have, you know, nine full-time staffers, but we've got somebody in Boston, we got people in New York, we got somebody in Atlanta, we got people in LA. It's just a different industry where being more spread out is advantageous to the actual results of the business. We could, excuse me, afford to have it all under one roof in the media business because that was just the nature of that business. And so, um, I'm not necessarily a proponent of one or the other. I think it depends on what type of business you're running and what goals you have. Um, but that's a good example of, I think, a culture-defining moment. And we had so many people, especially from the tech industry, uh, where we were, you know, had a lot of relationships and we did a lot of investing, say, that's so archaic, um, that's inflexible, you're missing out on a ton of talent. And all that's true. But we just felt, given our leadership style, our goals, and our industry, it made sense. No, that, that, that's really interesting, and we struggled with that, being in the travel industry. And, I mean, everybody wants to be here and there, and to bring right. everybody together to Austin was very difficult for us. Yeah. And I still don't spend all my time here, and we have a small office in Costa Rica, and we have a couple small satellite offices, uh, one in Thailand, one in Europe, where we run about a lot of our trips, and then we have one in Peru. And so, and these might only be a couple people three people working in an office, but that really, at least if they have a place to come together and, yep. you know, the people in Europe are managing what's going on in Europe, they don't have to be in Austin, plus we're, right. we have like 10 or 12 different nationalities on the team, and so there's obviously visa challenges and all that, mm -hmm. but it, for us it came down to do the people want to be part of what we're doing? Do they get it? Do they want to share with their teammates? Because you come across the digital nomads and you come across people who just, they want to be trip leaders in, I don't know, Machu Picchu or wherever. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's amazing. But to bring people together was really, it was really tough for us. Makes sense. Uh, but yeah, it's that, that, I like how you said continuity and communication. That's, that seems like what it's all about. Yeah, and that's industry specific. I think for what you guys do, it makes sense that it's spread out. For what I'm doing now, it makes sense that it's spread out. Um, just given the timing and the industry and the types of leaders that Gary and I were, no remote staff made sense. No, that's that. How did you guys? Uh, how did you guys compete? How did you guys? Like we try to give some time off because we know that's why people live in the travel or, or sure. work in travel is to to have time in these amazing locations. So how did you balance that? Yeah, um, I think the two biggest things that allowed us to hire great people uh, and keep great people was one we had a meritocracy. Um, we truly. And our meritocracy was being was fulfilled by growth. If we weren't growing as fast as we were growing, and for context, we went from two to you know six hundred employees in seven years. If we weren't growing that fast, we wouldn't have had the ability for staff to rise up the ladder. So the combination of successful growth plus a true meritocracy allowed somebody, you know, allowed somebody to work at VaynerMedia for five months and get promoted. Instead of you got to work three years and you got to do like we we're promoting like crazy and it was merit it was meritocracy based and it wasn't it wasn't empty promotions you know you got increased responsibility you got increased compensation and ultimately we didn't care how old you were because it would have been pretty hypocritical for a 25 year old chief operating officer to say that somebody was too young to be an account executive or an account manager so at the tippy top you know I was. 25, 26, I was 26 and managing 300 employees and, you know, our senior leadership all older than me, right? So I think the fact that I was so young in such a leadership role ultimately provided 
uh, a meritocracy approach in terms of career development. And then the other one that was a huge advantage was Gary's brand. You know, Gary, we we never had problems getting applications. Um, you know, Gary would go speak at a conference, 40 applications for jobs. You know, Gary made a video, 50 applications for jobs. So because of Gary's personal brand and, um, you know, the platform that he built, especially within the industry that we were in, uh, people wanted to work for us and wow. wanted to continue to work for us. That's that's awesome. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, AJ, how did you, how did you deal with having so many young people in such high positions with not all that much experience? Obviously, they understood the tools, and that was a very young person's game. You know, you're talking about social media at its birth. Right. But uh, yeah, tell tell me about how you how you supported people who didn't have as much experience as as the com competition. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was just constant effort. Uh, whether it was investing in the development, professional development of staff, uh, you know, we would pepper in people with more experience. You know, constantly hiring, um, you know, different types of people with different types of experience, so that other folks could learn from that staff. Um, hiring fast and firing fast. You know, the funny thing about meritocracy is that. If you succeed, it could be extremely fulfilling, but if you fail, it could be, you know, so there, there were people that there's, there's definitely a situation in VaynerMedia's history where somebody was promoted nine months into starting, promoted again a year later, promoted again, and then six months after being promoted that third time, fired because they reached a point where I'm not going to say they hit their ceiling. They just hit their ceiling with us for our very specific desires you know they maybe didn't adjust to the increased level of responsibility and the whole notion is you got to be careful what you ask for if you're going to ask for this promotion if you're going to ask for this responsibility you're going to ask for this pay increase you have to be worth it and so um there's definitely been times where somebody flew up the ladder and then got axed and it, it was the that's the double-edged sword of meritocracy so that mix you know investing in professional development um hiring some more senior staff even if they didn't have the right experience, so to speak, we knew that they could come in with a certain level of experience that could actually help 10 people below them grow faster, things like that. Hmm. And were you able to build that almost into your culture where people knew where you set their expectations, maybe in interviews, uh, where it's like, all right, we're going to get, this is going to be a wild ride. You're going to yeah. learn a lot on the way and you might hit that ceiling and it might not work out. Did you just tell them like that? Point blank. You know, I don't think we. I don't think I'll be honest. I don't think we told him point blank that like you might hit a ceiling and and be out. But I think it was a part of the culture because I think something that's underestimated when it comes to culture. Again, talking about staff knowing when somebody gets fired, everybody notices, especially at a certain size, right? When you're 200 employees and you fire somebody who's maybe mid to senior. Everybody knows. And that permeates within the culture. And when you fire somebody that deserves to be fired, it makes the A players within the organization even more motivated and more believing in the leadership. So on the flip side, if you have a bunch of A players, whether at junior level, mid-level, senior level, and they see somebody that isn't an A, either still around or getting promoted, it negatively impacts them. So um, I actually think one of our greatest strengths was our ability to fire at the right time because it matters. It has a, it has a ripple effect, and I think that's underestimated. Okay. Any uh, that's really interesting insight. Do you have any more, anything more on when the right time to fire? Somewhat, you said fire fast, so maybe yeah. as soon as um, possible. You know, I think there's a certain level of wanting to be fair. I think it's important to... Give people time to acclimate. Um, you know, I think it's important to communicate. You know, I, I something I always try to avoid was somebody avoid. Excuse me, was being blindsided by a fire. I don't think that's a good way to fire. Um, so, I would say probably the biggest weakness when it comes to firing is people not wanting to have the hard conversation. And so, people like to procrastinate either the hard conversation or the actual termination. And so, having the um, strength to 
have a hard conversation or to fire somebody is probably the biggest tip I have. And the other thing I'll share, it never gets better. It never gets <laughs> easier. It always sucks. At least for me, it always sucks. You know, I, I've fired, this is not, a, I'm not bragging. I've probably fired around a hundred people, if not more in my career, uh, probably more. And the, the, you know, the first time was awful. The 10th time was awful. And the hundredth time was awful. It's never good. Sure. Um, so you just have to kind of recognize that. And if you want to be successful, you got to deal with some stuff that sucks. Comes with it. Yeah. And, and hopefully that person goes on to find a position where they can be more successful. Absolutely. And I, I sometimes, and it's the truth, sometimes I tell people um, that just because you're being fired does not mean when the, the, you know, the, the seesaw of blame or the levers of blame, I'm not saying you're 100% at fault and we're zero. There's definitely been employees that were fired year three at VaynerMedia that would have not been fired in year six of VaynerMedia because year six VaynerMedia was more mature as a company, had more systems in place that could have supported that employee, um, and they might have not have failed. And then vice versa. There's definitely employees that succeeded, maybe that were more raw in year two of VaynerMedia that would never make it year seven of VaynerMedia because VaynerMedia matured and the, the industry matured. So sometimes it's timing and sometimes uh, it's all about fit. There's, like, there's plenty of people that have been more successful post VaynerMedia than with VaynerMedia because it's sometimes just a matter of timing and fit. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. Were you, if you advance someone really, uh, really quickly, were you able to ever successfully demote someone and say, no. Uh, no, you just had to end it? I don't believe in it. I okay. don't believe in demotions. I, um, you, can, you can reduce their level of responsibility, but as far as demotions go, I've never... Outside of an April Fool's joke, I never demoted anybody. <laughs> um, we had this promotions note go out once a month during year like two, three, and four of VaynerMedia and for the April note. I demoted somebody, but that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe in it. And so I don't, think, I don't think you can recover from it as the employee. Somebody irritated. I just don't think it has a good impact on culture and it doesn't, uh, I don't think it helps that person. You know, you devote somebody, they're probably looking for their next job within two to four hours of that devotion. Sure. They're leave anyway, I think. Cool. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, uh, AJ, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and, and uh, ask you how this insane growth and probably all of the stress that came along with it and being young and hungry and passionate and going after something, how did that take a, a toll on you personally? Because I know that you ended up taking some time off to get your health together. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, um, stress was a massive uh, impact on me personally. Um, so as you referenced earlier, I suffer from something called Crohn's disease. Uh, which is a, a digestive disease um, impacting my intestines. And stress is actually the single largest uh, cause of increased symptoms. So there's a, a direct correlation between stress and how you physically feel when you deal with Crohn's. So, um, you know, I, I did a good job over the course of building VaynerMedia of learning how to deal with stress. Um, one of the best things I ever did in my entire life was uh, get help. I actually found a therapist and went to see a therapist once a week for like two, three years um, during like the mid to late stage run at VaynerMedia. And we primarily focused on stress at work and, and my disease because it's a little bit of a snowball effect where if I got stressed at work, I would get sick. And then when I get sick, I would get behind on work, which would make me more stressed about work. It's just a vicious snowball effect. Um, so therapy was fantastic being able to talk it out, um, and just getting those thoughts out of your head and having somebody that can kind of provide you perspective and give you that feedback loop. You know, I had my, you know, wife, girlfriend at the time. I had my brother, I had my mom, I had my sister, I had my dad, I had people to talk to, I had friends, 
But I think having a third party that has absolutely no other association with you personally is a really great vehicle to deal with stress and, and get your thoughts out and work through them. So that was probably the single best thing I did. Um, in general, I'm a big fan of perspective. So whenever things were tough, I put things into perspective. Uh, whether it's my workload, I put into perspective of that workload. Whether something went wrong, what does it really mean that that went wrong? Like how much does that really impact me? So. Uh, always just kind of being grateful for, you know, what we had, you know, it's a whole lot better to be stressed while building a very successful company than it is to be stressed while having all sorts of other things go wrong in your life. Right. So yeah. that was a big portion of it. And then ultimately I decided to leave VaynerMedia because even though I got to a point where I managed my stress level to a really great degree, the nature of the business, the nature of my responsibilities I knew I could never fully get to where I wanted to be personally. Um, so I stepped away from the media company, took some time off, as you mentioned, and really have been able to, with Vayner Sports, um, create a situation, a scenario where I still have stress. But the, the, there's different types of stress, and I'm a believer that anything you do as far as there's just stress is a part of life, and it's about how you handle it. But I think the constructs, um, you know, for example, VaynerMedia is over 800 employees now. Managing a company of 800 people would create a consistent line of stress that I could never change. Vayner Sports is less than 10. That is a different, and there's still stress with managing people, but it's um, it's just a different environment, and if it, it much more suits me, you know. Um, so, sure, sure. No, that that that's really awesome. Um, I'm. I wanted to ask for people for people who might be listening and struggle with irritable bowel or any types of digestive issues. Uh, I I'm not an expert on digestive issues, but if someone's thinking, man, maybe I should, you know, when I if I'm in the same caught in that same struggle where, oh man, uh, I'm real I really get balled up in in knots. Sorry, not mm -hmm. to, to put a metaphor around yeah, yeah. how somebody might be feeling, but if this sounds like someone that something that someone out there might have, how do they go get that checked out and know that it's not just something more minor? Sure. So the actual like um, identification of the issue and the disease, um, you know, I was diagnosed at 19 okay. and, and when I was diagnosed at 19, I actually walked myself to the emergency room. Um, I had the symptoms for years. I know I had Crohn's for many years prior to being diagnosed. But um, two real big things prevented me from getting diagnosed. One, culturally, my family being from the former Soviet Union, uh, medicine and going to the doctor is really not a big part of the culture. Um, you know, Crohn's is genetic. My family has no idea who else had it. But we know somebody had it. And we have our ideas. Uh, but nobody, I'm the first person in my entire lineage to ever get diagnosed. And so that was one. And then two... Uh, just being self-aware, I ate terribly as a kid and, you know, and I just assumed that if you eat terribly, you're going to have stomach issues. Like I kind of just correlated, well, yeah, I'm slamming a bunch of candy, drinking a bunch of soda, eating chips. Like what else is going to happen? It's all crap. So those two things stopped me from being uh, diagnosed. But when I got to college and I was surrounded with more people on a day-to-day -day basis that ate terribly or even drank, um, I knew that there was something different about what I was dealing with. I had one particularly bad morning and I literally just got myself out of bed. I'm like, I'm going to go see a doctor. I went to the ER. I was in real pain. Uh, I was very fortunate enough that I got a great doctor who recommended a colonoscopy right away. Um, I think that's the most common way to uh, discover whether you have some sort of IBD related disease. Um, and I got a colonoscopy relatively soon after that and was instantly diagnosed, which is very fortunate. A lot of people struggle to get diagnosed quickly with, uh, you know, colitis or Crohn's or IBD. Um, so yeah, I mean, the biggest thing I would say is if you're feeling this way, see uh, a gastroenterologist. I think that's how you say it. I just say gastro. See a gastro and um, ask them to, to what kind of testing can you do? Cool. Cool. Yeah. No, that, that sounds straightforward enough. Um, when you were, when you're going through all your stress, were you just eating terribly then as well? Um, you know, once I got diagnosed, my eating habits improved. When I was going through my stress, I wouldn't say my diet suffered. Um, but 
you know, there's, there, there was definitely times where I got so frustrated with how I was feeling where if I was eating well but still feeling terribly, there's definitely the thought of like, well, shit, if I'm going to feel terrible, I might as well eat what I want. Like why keep eating you know, clean and healthy if you're just going to feel terrible anyway? Might as well be able to eat pizza and candy and all that. So uh, there's probably were lapses where I said, fuck it. I feel like shit anyway, so I'm just going to eat what I want when I want. Um, but overall, you know, as far as how I felt, the other, the, the other major X factor in, in my journey with Crohn's, I actually had surgery about five years ago. I had parts of my intestine, both my large and small, removed. Wow. Um, so I, I did get to a point where I did have serious damage to my intestines and needed them to be removed. Um, you know, had serious medical procedures, was in the hospital for two weeks recovering. Um, so that was also a variable in how I felt and, you know, comes with um, the disease. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I was reading up before that just so much scar tissue gets built that's up. Exactly, that's got to be exactly what happened. Extremely, that's exactly what happened. Extremely painful. Damn. Um, okay, so then, so then take us along the, the ride there. Well, actually, you, now, so now you do work uh, with the foundation. Yes. Uh, to, yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. So that article I wrote ended up getting into the hands of somebody um, involved with the foundation. And, um, you know, initially I just had some informational meetings with them and uh, the New York City chapter specifically, which is the largest chapter for CCFA, uh, chose to honor me um, about a year and a half ago as uh, their man of the year for their national largest event. So that was a great honor. Um, got involved with the foundation that way, started, you know, help raise, um, you know, funds for the charity. And then about six months ago or so, or a little bit longer, nine to 12 months ago, I was invited to join the board for the New York chapter. And um, six months ago or so, I was accepted and participated since. So um, the probably the thing I'm most excited about on a national level, I probably can't talk too much about it because we haven't gotten there yet, but I have... Um, sparked some real healthy discussion around cryptocurrency and uh, and the foundation. So you know, it's there's other foundations that are accepting Bitcoin and things of that nature, but I'm challenging CCFA to look at crypto as a whole um, and not just as a PR stunt and think about how it can be integrated into you know the fund's mission. Sure, sure. The, you can make the uh, CCC Foundation, the Crohn's Colitis and Crypto. <laughs> you never there, know when there, you're... there's there's some overlap there. <laughs> That's uh... That's cool. That that's great. So, and then Vayner Sports, man, this is a whole new initiative. It seems, or you've been at it for a little while now. Yeah, uh, a little bit. Yeah, I've, been, I've been full time on it for about a year and a half. Um, it's a lot of fun. I'm really loving it. You know, working with uh, NFL players, help them both on and off the field, and we've grown it uh, pretty considerably over the last few years. Uh, started initially with just two clients, and now uh, nearly 25 clients in the NFL. And um, it's just been really fun. I think there's, I think the modern day athlete is a lot smarter than our society gives them credit for. Um, and, and frankly, I think they've become smarter. I, I think that athletes in the 70s and 80s, not all of them, I don't want it to be a blanket statement that would be unfair, but I would say as a percentage, athletes are more focused on life after football, life outside of football, business, entrepreneurship, uh, investing, how to build generational wealth. That's becoming more and more prominent as every day goes by. And I think even the kids coming up through college and high school and middle school, uh, through the advents of the internet and having role models, you know, I think the biggest thing that's benefited athletes today were guys like Magic Johnson, who took an unbelievable basketball career and turned it into a business career. Um, as much as I'm not a fan of the next player, Michael Jordan is a huge inspiration to a lot of athletes. I know LeBron has been an inspiration to a lot of the kids that are coming up now. And my goal really is for our athletes to be those insp inspirational figures. Um, and then hopefully other athletes will follow suit. Um, but there's an unbelievable platform that comes with prof playing professional sports. And I think um, the ability to help these guys capitalize on that's extremely fulfilling. That, that's great. And uh, you got you got to tell me about the MJ thing. Is it because you're just such a hardcore Knicks fan? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's pretty cut and dry. Okay, that's uh, it. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I don't like people that cause the team that I root for personal hardships. So I've got real disdain for a certain quarterback up north. 
you know, Jordan's not high on my list and uh, things like that. So fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, that's that's funny. So uh, to, to go back a little bit to the personal brands of these athletes, uh, I mean, I was listening to uh, Bill Simmons uh, talk to it was well he's had kevin durant on several right. times i don't know if you've caught any of those podcasts but then his agent uh yep rich what's rich rich's last name i want to say paul this, i could be wrong i think it's rich paul i could uh, be wrong uh, are climbing no i you know i don't know rich okay paul, somebody else rich paul, this is a different rich i apologize i don't remember his name no either. it's okay not, but not I, know, I know who you're talking about yeah absolutely and and he's uh you know they were they were talking about how yeah you got the the Jordan or the the magic and then the Jordan era but now these athletes are are brands when they come in at 19 years old and they know they know that and they've been they've been seeding sometimes sometimes I'll see high school stars on uh on Instagram you're probably in this world and you see Instagram stars on on if from high school and you're like holy shit look how many followers this person has and verified accounts and all of this and it's yeah. uh it's the real deal they're branding themselves but this is something that you guys were really early on uh with Vayner Media helping athletes and and, yeah. and franchises build their yeah. brands right yeah i mean to your point there's a kid named uh Zion Williamson who has 1.5 million followers on Instagram and has yet to play a single game of college basketball. He's in, he's going to Duke. Uh, wow. He's incoming. And he's a massive – I think he's the number two or number three prospect in the nation. But he built a massive following because he's just um, you know got these unbelievable dunks in high school games. And you know Instagram culture is that highlight culture. So, yeah, this is a kid that hasn't scored a single point in the NCAA or NBA that has 1.5 million followers. And uh, obviously brands are excited – to attach to something like that. And so it's a, it's a new world. You know, LeBron, LeBron didn't have 1.5 million followers coming in. And I can't even imagine what it would look like, you know, if, if LeBron came up in this day and age, so to speak. But I think Zion's an example of it, you know, at least a, a, an example to the side of it. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, these platforms are a blessing and a curse. And, you know, being able to navigate them well and, Take advantage of the platform that you naturally have by participating in one of the biggest cultural, you know, music and sports are, you know, the two biggest cultural aspects and hobbies of our country. So my whole thing is, especially for what I like to tell a lot of these guys, is that in my opinion, the NFL, the you know, National Football League, the real acronym is not for long. The average NFL career is very short. And so when you have the ability to build an audience in college or in high school, and then when you're in the NFL, you have to capitalize on that platform. And, you know, there's multiple ways to capitalize. And I'm talking outside the football field. Obviously, capitalize on the football field. Make as much money from a team contract as you can. But then there's the ability to make money via endorsements. I would say the single biggest thing, though, off the field that these guys need to focus on that we help them with is networking. Because when you play for this entrepreneur's favorite football team, they'll take that meeting with you. And they'll take an interest in getting to know you. And when you're a retired player, it's just not the same. So, take. It's, by the way, my brother and I are a great example. Before starting Vayner Sports, any Jets player could have asked for a meeting, and we would have taken it instantly and prioritized it all the way to the tippy top of the list. And those are the types of things our guys need to be doing. Sure. No, it makes makes perfect sense. Uh, it, so, was LeBron going to to L.A. or San Francisco to 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 move into? To the tech scene? I personally think LeBron's going to go to L.A. this offseason. That's okay. my belief. Um, you know, he's got a lot of business set up that way. The Lakers are a great brand. Um, I could see it going that way. He's not coming to New York, huh? As much as I would love to have him in New York, I don't think he wants to be there. <laughs> that's, uh, that's awesome. Well, AJ, I, I, I want to let you go here soon. Um, but if anybody wants to... To reach out to you to follow what you guys are doing, uh, it's it's exciting stuff. So I want to let you uh, shout out wherever people can get in touch with you. Yeah, um, so you can follow me on social um, on Twitter. It's just AJV on Instagram. It's just AJV. Those are the two that I use the most. And then please, uh, anybody can email me anytime. I read and try to reply to every single email. It's just AJ at VaynerSports.com. 
Awesome, man. Well, I, uh, I appreciate it, and let's not make it so long next time. Agreed. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. Got you. it. All right, man. Take care. Listeners, it's Matt Wilson coming to you after celebrating the sixth birthday of our incredible travel company, Under 30 Experiences, up there in Austin, Texas. I'm back here in Costa Rica, and I have a resolution for you guys. What we've done with Under 30 that's gone so, so phenomenally well and made what looks like an overnight success here that's actually taken tons of hard work and lots of relationship building and tons of heart and effort and passion put into what we do every single day. What we've done best is build community. And I want to build community around the Live Different podcast. I want to design a place where you can come and get support, talk about living the best possible life that you can when it comes to the topics of travel, health, performance, business, all the things that we talk about on the Live Different podcast. And I want to be able to support you guys. And moreover, I want to have the guests be able to participate in that, for you to be able to ask them questions, for you to be able to interact, for you to be part of a group of like-minded people. So what I'm going to ask today is that you send me an email if you were listening to this, matt at under30experiences.com, and we are going to start a super secret Facebook group as well as email list. So if you want in, email me directly and say that, yes, I want to be part of this super secret program. This is free, by the way. This is just a way to build community around what we do at the Live Different Podcast. Please send me an email, madden30experiences.com. I will respond. I will get back to you. I will add you to this new group and to this email list so you can get insider access to all the people that we have on the show. Uh, as well as to the community. So thank you guys very much. I really want to bring this to the next level. Looking forward to hearing from you.